Dr. Morrow commented on the split across the Atlantic in terms of use of neoadjuvant systemic therapy, and I met with Dr. Ian Smith, who's been a leader in the use of neoadjuvant endocrine therapy in European trials. Dr. Smith summarized what he sees as the major issues to date with this intervention. Nearly all the work with neoadjuvant endocrine therapy has been done in postmenopausal women, and there are one or two things you can say with fair degree of certainty. There have been three trials, three large trials, comparing aromatase inhibitors with tamoxifen, one with letrozole, two with anastrozole. And they, by and large, show that the aromatase inhibitors are more effective, both in terms of getting tumor regression and, more important, really, in terms of reducing the need for mastectomy. So I think the main clinical indication for neoadjuvant endocrine therapy in postmenopausal women who's ER-positive cancer is if you've got a large cancer and you want to downstage to avoid mastectomy, which the woman might wish to do for cosmetic reasons or because they're elderly or whatever. What about the choice between chemotherapy and endocrine therapy in that situation? Well, that's the real crunch. The more I use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, the more I wonder why we don't use it more. When it works, it's extremely good. It's just a little anecdote of a lady about 60 who's referred with a 5-centimeter cancer for neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And it's ER positive, and she really, really does not want to have chemotherapy. And she wants to have a lumpectomy? Well, yeah. I mean, she's like to avoid mastectomy as well if she can, but the main thing, she doesn't. So we treat her with letrozole, which would not have been my initial choice. With a large cancer like that, I would have thought, you know, chemotherapy would be better. How old was she? She was 59. And she had a complete remission on her letrozole. What happened at surgery? At surgery, she had conservative surgery, and there was only a small residual tumor of about one centimeter left. The problem we've got in that lady is, does she therefore not need chemotherapy? And it's a very interesting question, because up until recently, there have not been any data. We're beginning to look at our results in the IMPACT trial. That was a trial comparing Arimidex with tamoxifen with Matt Ellis, who's doing the same in the P24 trial, which was with letrozole versus tamoxifen. And we're beginning to put together a kind of algorithm which suggests that if you have a very good tumor response so that the final tumor at surgery measures one centimeter or less, and if you have good suppression of key 67, proliferative marker key 67, and if your ER is still positive, which it usually is, but not always, sometimes it can revert, then these patients have an extremely good long-term outlook. These are data that are not yet published, although they've been presented, and we're going to be publishing them soon. What about the axillary node status specifically, and then the issue of when it's determined pre- or post-treatment? Well, the question is, are you going to do sentinel nodes, and if you are, when are you going to do them? 
There are data that suggest that there may be a degree of downstaging of the auxiliary nodes, and therefore the purists would say that you should do the sentinel node before surgery. By and large, we do this, and it's actually a very easy procedure. It doesn't hold things up. So if you're wanting to be very precise and specific, I think there is an argument for doing sentinel node before you start your new adjuvant treatment. And is that part of this factoring in this question of whether they're going to need chemo later on? Yeah, I think that what I'm talking about are patients whose nodes are negative. Right. <clears throat> so if you've got a patient who is node negative at surgery, okay, at surgery, with these parameters that I've said, very small tumor, one centimeter or less, ER positive, and with a low key 67, it looks like these patients almost never relapse. They've got a very good outlook. So there's a subgroup you can say, right, they don't need chemotherapy. So to come back to my lady, who is 59, we can say to her, despite the fact this is the lady who had a big six-centimeter cancer, remember, despite all that, this is a lady that we can say, you've got a very good long-term outlook, you don't need chemotherapy. So at present, the main indication for neoadjuvant endocrine therapy is to downstage to avoid mastectomy, but... I think it's going to become much more important than this. I think we're going to see a lot more giving neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, not simply to downstage, but as a means of determining whether that patient needs to go on to have chemotherapy or not. Now, in those circumstances, you don't necessarily need to be treating large cancers. You could be treating small cancers. So we're no longer looking for large cancers to downstage to avoid mastectomy. We're looking at almost all comers, perhaps. Looking at biology. Absolutely. And we're using the tumor as an in vivo measure of response before surgery to determine that lady's, the efficacy of the endocrine therapy and also to predict long-term outcome and whether chemotherapy needs added in or not. Now, you mentioned Q67, a marker of proliferation. What do we know about how changes in key 67 after neoadjuvant therapy sort of predict what's going to happen in the future? Right. Well, this is something that we have looked at in the IMPACT trial, and the answer is that pre-treatment key 67 is a prognostic factor, as that's been known. But it's not nearly so far. What we've also done is look at key 67 two weeks after treatment. And in the IMPACT trial... The key 67, the absolute level, two weeks after treatment, was a much more powerful prognosticator, a much more powerful determinant of whether patients were going to do well or not than the preoperative one. And I guess what's happening is you're getting a kind of integration of the basic biology of the cancer, which the pretreatment key 67 reflects, but also the sensitivity of that specific tumor to the treatment, which is why the two-week post-treatment key 67 seems to be more effective. It makes a lot of sense that that would be more sensitive than just sort of feeling yeah. or imaging yeah. a lesion. What do you see, for example, you give 100 women who have ER-positive tumor and AI, like what do you see with the key 67? In 100 women? Mm-hmm. You, well, there's a spectrum. Some women have very low levels. The average reduction is about 80%. I guess the other issue, too, is then what kind of hormonal therapy is going to be utilized and for how long in particular. That kind of leads into that whole issue of ER-positive breast cancer. Can you kind of summarize some of the key changes that have occurred over the last few years in terms of management of these patients in the adjuvant setting? Well, the biggest change in postmenopausal 
women is, of course, the development of the aromatase inhibitors. Up front, both anastrozole and letrozole improve outcome in terms of reducing the risk of recurrence. But it's not a very big difference. I think it's important to remember this. The absolute difference is about 3 or 4% at five years, and neither of these trials have shown a survival difference. Now, I think every little bit counts, and I think improving disease-free survival is worthwhile, providing the patient is doing well. In the randomized trials, the aromatase inhibitors were tolerated, if anything, better than tamoxifen. What about the issue of therapy beyond five years? Now, with tamoxifen, we've been using five years. We just recently had some data presented at the San Antonio meeting looking at more than five years. Can you talk a little bit about what was seen there and what the issue is in the duration of AIs? Well, the cleanest and most, I think, important of all the aromatase inhibitor trials is the MA17, which shows quite clearly that if you've been on tamoxifen for five years and you switch to letrozole, you do better. And as this trial is updated, the evidence suggests that the longer you go on, beyond five years, there's now data out to about nine years, the greater the benefit. The additional thing in the ME17 trial that is of interest is after two and a half years when the first results came out, because the results were so, the difference was much more dramatic than people had imagined, patients on the placebo were given the opportunity to switch or not. And some did and some didn't. The ones who did had worse prognostic features. Their original cancers had worse prognostic features than those who didn't. That's kind of what you'd imagine because that's one of the things that would influence them to actually go on. Despite that group are now doing better than the ones who didn't switch. It's not randomized, of course, but these are women who started two or three years after they had stopped tamoxifen. And even there, worse prognosis, but they're doing better as well. So I think there's a pretty powerful message coming through that long-term use of aromatase inhibitors is of benefit. And maybe some women are going to have to go on almost forever. Now, there's two other issues. One is, what about if you've been on an aromatase inhibitor before that time, either for two or three years as part of a switch policy, or indeed the whole five years? The answer is, we just don't know. But my instinct is, I don't see why these women are dramatically different from the women who've been on tamoxifen. So my instinct would be to encourage women, if they're tolerating treatment well, to continue. That's an instinctive thing. There are a lot of trials running to test it. And then the other point is that we've believed for many years that the same is not true of tamoxifen, that more than five years tamoxifen, based on the one trial, based on the B14 trial, the NSABP B14 trial, that trial, randomizing women after five years to continue tamoxifen or not, suggested that there was indeed a detrimental effect with a significantly worse disease-free survival. And that was backed up by similar findings in a much smaller Scottish trial. And indeed, it was reinforced by experimental evidence that suggests that very long-term use of tamoxifen in the laboratory or in animal studies, tamoxifen can become estrogenic. So the story looked fairly clear-cut. And indeed, there are ASCO guidelines and so on that you shouldn't continue tamoxifen in more than five years. 
So like everything else in breast cancer, just when you think you've got something sorted out, it isn't. And at this year's San Antonio meeting, Richard Pito presented the preliminary result of an enormous trial called ATLAS with about 11,500 women all over the world, about 38 countries, I think, were involved, where women were randomized, like the B14 trial, but with 10 times more patients, to continue to moxfen beyond five years or not. He didn't present a lot of data. There was quite a lot of hypothetical stuff, but the data he did present suggested that there was a small benefit in continuing to moxfen, quite the opposite of the B14. So... Suddenly, this question's wide open again. There is another trial coming along as well, ATOM, which is almost the same as ATLAS, five years and then randomized to continue or not, except that ATOM is mainly a United Kingdom trial with about 8,000 patients in, and the results of that trial are due this year. So I don't think we can make any conclusive statements about adjuvant tamoxifen beyond five years at this point, except to say that it is suddenly it's an open question again. I guess the issue too is what about the risks, the toxicity yep. going beyond five yep. years? What yep. do we know about that in terms of thrombosis and endometrial yep. cancer? Yeah. Well, this is a good point. The downside of long-term tamoxifen is that the risk of endometrial cancer seems to rise with time. That's what the B14 trial showed, and possibly also the risk of venous thromboembolism as well. And in the ATT&CK trial, there was an increased risk of cerebrovascular disease with tamoxifen versus aromatase inhibitors. And that is the other... I mean, there's two big disadvantages for tamoxifen. One is it's not quite so good... And the other is that its toxicities, although they're rare, are a lot more serious. The toxicities of the aromatase inhibitors, osteoporosis, I don't think is a big issue at all because you monitor for it, look for it, and prevent it. And the arthralgia, well, it's an unpleasant problem, but it's not life-threatening. I was thinking, too, that I guess, I mean, we'd have to see the data, but I guess you would expect that if a woman finished five years of tamoxifen and was still premenopausal, that... I would assume she's not going to be an increased risk for endometrial cancer and deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think the tamoxifen story is of much more relevance to younger women, where at this point we don't know whether ovarian suppression and aromatase inhibitor is superior or not. So I think you're absolutely right there, with the additional benefit that the risk of endometrial cancer is going to be much lower. What about the issue of management of the premenopausal patient who becomes menopausal while she's on tamoxifen? Maybe she got chemo, maybe she didn't get chemo, but she becomes menopausal. Do you then switch her to an AI? Well, I think that's a very risky thing to do. We actually were doing this based on the data in postmenopausal women, and it seemed axiomatic to do the same. And we discovered, and we published this, that some of our women, probably around 25, maybe 30% of them, were actually beginning to switch on ovarian function again while they were on an aromatase inhibitor. Most of the time, they began to menstruate, so you could spot it. But in fact, when we looked at it more closely, some of them had not begun to menstruate, but their estradiol levels were a lot higher than would be required for aromatase inhibitors to be effective. So I think it's a very risky thing to do, to use an aromatase inhibitor on its own in a younger woman who's made menopausal by chemotherapy. 
In fact, to go further than that, it may be risky even in women who've developed spontaneous menopause. To give you our most extreme example so far, a 53-year-old lady who had been amenorrheic for five years started to menstruate again when we put her on within three months of going on to enrollment days inhibitor. So it's not just your 45-year-olds, it's women over the age of 52. I think you have to be very cautious in that age group. Interesting. You were talking before when you were talking about neoadjuvant therapy, about this issue of endocrine therapy versus chemotherapy, and there's been this so-called across-the-pond difference where endocrine therapy, neoadjuvant, is much more utilized and studied in Europe and the U.K., mm-hmm. What about the issue of adjuvant chemotherapy? And I'm particularly interested in your thoughts, again, across the pond in terms of some of the genomic analyses that are out there now, the oncotype, the mammoth print. Is that something that you all are actually bringing into your practice? I think, to me, the most impressive one of the genomic assays is oncotype DX. Because of the way it's been done, it's been done in patients who've been treated with tamoxifen and it's been done in the B20 study, whereas the print is not based on people who've actually had therapies before. Looking at it from Europe, looking across at the States, I think it looks very persuasive. The reality is at present it is used only minimally, but I suspect that's going to change It's certainly not something that has been licensed or in the UK we have this process called NICE, this group who look at cost efficacy and it hasn't come to NICE yet. But, you know, the private sector often leads the NHS and it's just beginning to drift into. And I suspect the more people look at these data, they seem to me very compelling. Well, in addition to the clinical benefit is the issue of the economic impact. Yes, You know, if you start looking at the people who don't receive chemotherapy and then the ones who do may be avoiding a relapse, which has tremendous financial consequences, maybe this actually plays out as being cost-effective as well as patient-friendly. Once you look at these data in node-negative women and you see that some women with large cancers, say four centimeter, greater than four centimeter cancers, that for us would be an indication for chemotherapy. And yet significant percentage of these are in the very low risk with oncotypes. So you've got a big saving there. But conversely, some women with less than one centimeter cancers that look like they're going to do very well actually have a high risk score. So I mean, even more importantly is it looks like there's a pretty substantial risk reduction if you do treat. And that's the point. That's exactly at the high risk. Those with the high recurrence score have this extraordinary benefit of, what, 25%, 26%? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Relative 75%. So if you're a woman who's got a cancer that's got a high recurrence score, and you know that it's going to... I mean, that's very easy to sell that to somebody that, you know, we sit and agonize over 2 or 3% benefits with chemotherapy, and no one's very sure. But if we've got this 26 27% benefit... It's a given. And my prediction is once it takes off in Europe, it's going to be very quick. It won't be a gradual thing. It's something that will happen. And I guess that's happening in the States now. Yeah, definitely. In our patterns of care studies, we've seen that change a lot in the last two, three years. The other thing that's going to be interesting to see is now we're starting to see data coming out in node-positive patients, particularly San Antonio, but even before that. Where do you see these kinds of approaches or oncotypes specifically fitting in in patients with no positive tumors? Well, I think the principle is very important because there are already data, Kathy Albain presented data, which she updates from time to time, 
which showed that some node-positive patients do not benefit from chemotherapy, do just as well without. So the node-positive, although it's been a very useful yardstick for many years, that in itself needs refining. So the answer is yes, I'm sure we're going to go down that road as well. Let's talk a little bit about what's happened in terms of adjuvant therapy, the patient with HER2-positive tumor. You've been very involved in that clinical research. Can you kind of provide an overview, particularly the kinds of things that you think a surgeon should know about in terms of what's happened? Well, I think, first of all, surgeons dealing with large cancers, some of the most spectacular data on Herceptin is in the neoadjuvant setting. There was a small but very influential MD Anderson study showing a pathological complete remission rate of about 60%, so just extraordinarily high with the use of Herceptin in addition to chemotherapy. The results were almost too good to be true, but there's now a large European trial, NOAA, in advanced breast cancer and inflammatory breast cancer, which also shows very high pathological complete remission rates with the addition of Herceptin compared with neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone. So the first point is that if you have a large cancer and you're considering neoadjuvant treatment and they're HER2 positive, then the Herceptin has to be in there up front, I think, rather than waiting until after surgery. And then in the adjuvant setting, all the trials, as they mature, continue to show this very significant benefit of the addition of Herceptin, but there are some big unanswered questions. The first is duration. The HERA trial that I'm involved in is the only trial that's addressing the question of duration. It's comparing two years with one year. And so far, no two-year data have become available. I guess we should say that the one year is the standard at this point. One year is standard in all the four large trials. There is, of course, the small fin hair trial, which looked at only nine weeks of Herceptin, with results that appeared to be as good as the year-long treatment. And there's another small trial that wasn't really designed to look at efficacy. It was designed to look at comparative toxicity. But for what it's worth, that trial also shows that very short duration Herceptin is as effective as year-long. So it's a very important question that needs to be looked at as well for reasons of cost and also for reasons of toxicity, in particular cardiac toxicity. And then the other big question is what's your optimal chemotherapy? The anthracyclines, there's a lot of evidence to say they're specifically effective in HER2-positive breast cancer, but, of course, we've got the problem of cardiotoxicity. And the alternative option, which comes from the BCIRG006 trial, is an upfront schedule TCH, which is taxotere, carboplatin, and receptin. And currently in that trial, TCH is doing as well as the more standard adromycin cyclophosphamide followed by taxotere herceptin, but with virtually no cardiotoxicity. In fact, the data we've got, you can say that virtually nearly all the cardiotoxicity problem with trastuzumab with herceptin relates to anthracyclines. If you don't have anthracyclines, you don't get cardiotoxicity, unless you're treating someone who's got a bad heart anyway. 
So it's a very important question. And the issue is, you know, when do we actually say, okay, the BCRG trial is definitive, hasn't been published yet. So I think the first analysis, TCH wasn't quite so good. So I think we just need to watch a little bit, but it's a crucial question. What about the issue of the patient with a node negative or two positive tumor? Well, the HERA trial had about more than 20% of patients were node negative, and the benefits, proportional benefits, were just the same for node negative as node positive, and there's no biological reason why node negative should behave differently. So if there's a significant risk, and there usually is when it's HER2 positive, it doesn't matter whether you're node negative or not. If there's an indication for chemotherapy anyway, then certainly trastuzumab should be added, Herceptin should be added. I think the really difficult question is if you have a very small cancer, which you would not normally treat with chemotherapy, what do you do there? Well, one option is adjuvant Herceptin alone. I'm using Herceptin trastuzumab interchangeably. I'm not very enthusiastic about that because there's simply no data to support it. My guess is it probably would be of some benefit, but most of the data in experimental data and in metastatic disease indicate that combined chemotherapy and acceptance more effective. The other issue that's beginning to emerge, and I've been impressed with this because it's made me change my thinking, is that the prognosis, the data that we've got on very small HER2-positive cancers, one centimetre or less, suggests that they actually do worse with about 15-20% risk of 10-year relapse. So I think with these small cancers, with the HER2-positive, probably we've got to be more aggressive than we've been in the past and bias ourselves towards using chemotherapy and Herceptin. What are we doing in terms of the next generation of clinical trials looking at these patients? One of the main trials, the new kid on the block, the new drug on the block is, of course, lapatinib. And the biggest trial, which is a very interesting trial because it's worldwide, it's the U.S. intergroups pooling the resources with all the European and the rest of the world, is called ALTO. And ALTO essentially compares adjuvant Herceptin with adjuvant lapatinib. But it's a forearm trial. And the arms are, the control arm is a year of Herceptin, which would be the standard, or a year of Lapatinib alone, or a year of the combination. And the final arm is a sequential arm, which is a year of initially Herceptin, then a washout period, and then Lapatinib. Can you talk a little bit about the mechanism of action of Lapatinib and how it compares to the trastuzumab? Yeah, trastuzumab is a monoclonal antibody that acts on the external domain of the HER2 transmembrane receptor. The patinib is a small molecule, it's a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, that inhibits the phosphorylation on the internal domain of HER2, but also of HER1. Theoretically, it ought to be more effective than Herceptin. There are one or two other potential advantages as well. There is a truncated form of HER2 in which the external domain is shed and a minority but a significant minority of HER2-positive breast cancers have not got this external domain. And in those circumstances, you would imagine the monoclonal antibody isn't going to be effective because the external domain that it targets isn't there. Whereas since lapatinib acts on the internal domain, it ought to still be effective. And the other theoretical advantage of lapatinib 
is because it's a small molecule, it can get into the brain. The blood-brain barrier is not such an issue, whereas receptin, big molecule, very difficult to get. And, of course, the corollary to that is that HER2-positive breast cancer seems to have a propensity for going to the brain anyway. So the hope is that lapatinib might also reduce the risk of CNS disease. And then finally, and again importantly, lapatinib does not appear to be associated with significant cardiotoxicity from the data we've got so far. So that will be another potential advantage, and all these issues are being looked at in the ALTA trial and the comparative trial. Now, you mentioned that one of the arms in the ALTA trial were actually combining the two, trastuzumab and lapatinib, and actually you see combination biologic therapy now starting to get studied in a bunch of tumors, lung cancer, colon cancer, etc., what do you think in terms of, you know, sort of theoretically when you look at these kinds of strategies, anything that strikes you in terms of maybe what the optimal approach might be? No, I don't think you can begin to talk about optimal approaches yet. I think we're just at the start of big new expansion in research in this area. Lepatinib and Herceptin do seem to be synergistic in experimental systems. Perhaps a more interesting combination is Herceptin and Bevacizumib, Avastin, a VEGF inhibitor, because there you're operating on two completely different pathways, which nevertheless are frequently co-expressed together. And again, there's experimental data to suggest synergy. And there's a phase one, two trial running. Mark Pegram is running that, which is showing high efficacy as first-line therapy in metastatic disease with the combination of receptin and bevacizumab. And this is really interesting because, you know, no chemotherapy. When did we ever treat aggressive metastatic breast cancer without chemotherapy? So as new targets emerge, there's going to be an enormous number of possible ways of putting it together. I think it's going to be difficult to know with all the theoretical options how best to select these drugs. And I guess it will be a mixture of partly rationale and partly pragmatism. And also, I mean, practically speaking, too, because the relapse rate is being dropped so much by yeah. trastuzumab, you've got to yeah. go to these giant studies to get the power. Yeah. And in fact, the other, I guess, major study that is actually looking at the strategy you're talking about, which is the BETH trial that the NSABP yeah. and the CRG yeah. are looking at, chemotherapy, I think it's going to be mainly TCH with the trastuzumab, and then alone or with bevacizumab. What are the issues there in terms of both efficacy and toxicity? You mentioned there's preclinical data that suggests that maybe that's going to be an effective combination. What do we know about that? And also, what about the integration of the side effects in terms of the heart, for example? Yeah, the heart's a worry because if you've got Herceptin with the potential to cause impairment of cardiofunction, cardiac output by acting directly on the myocardium, and you've also got bevacizumab, which is raising your blood pressure, then that's clearly not a very clever combination. And I think it emphasizes all the more how important it is to see if we can do without anthracyclines with trastuzumab. It would be a big advantage, although there may still be synergistic cardiotoxicity even without that. And, of course, there may be other toxicities that you wouldn't have imagined. I mean, one of the most important things that's come out of the whole Herceptin story is cardiotoxicity. It was not predicted in any animal or experimental model. And we're going to have to go very cautiously when we start putting these various targeted therapies against key pathways together 
there may well be entirely unpredicted toxicities. What do we know about the patients who do have cancer relapse in spite of receiving trastuzumab? Well, the first question is why? And there's a lot of work in the HERA trial, the so-called trans-HERA, where we're going to be looking at the molecular footprint of these tumors rather in the way that Oncotype DX has given us risk to see if we can identify risk and also to see if you can identify what the molecular markers are that predict for risk, then you can begin to work out mechanisms as well. Any in particular that look promising? There are markers that are being looked at, but as soon as somebody suggests something might be there, it's not. There's certainly nothing you can say at this stage that I'm aware of. The other thing, of course, is with relapse, there are patients who've relapsed on trastuzumab who respond to lepatinib, as we've said already. The field is very, very crowded at present with anti-HER2 or with anti-PAN-HER inhibitors. So there's a load of drugs there that are being looked at. And it's rather bizarre, but for the first time, it's almost good in a way to have HER2 positive breast cancer, despite the fact in the past it was much more aggressive, but there's so many drugs there. So it's a twin-pronged approach. Try and find out the mechanisms and meanwhile see if the newer drugs are better.